as we've seen, First Peter was written to warn the church about the dangers from without the church, that is, persecution. Second Peter is written to warn of the dangers within the church, that is, false teachers. I think it's worth noting, and I mentioned this last Sunday, that Peter does not focus so much on their teaching as he does on the actions of the false teachers. I mean, I, I think I would expect um, either a critique of their doctrinal positions or a defense of the gospel, a strong apologetic approach to deal with these false teachers. Instead, we find that Peter deals with their behavior. Last Sunday, we saw the two marks of false teachers. The first is their contempt for authority, and the second is their self-indulgence. The two are not unrelated. If one has contempt for authority, then one will, in fact, be self-indulgent. Let me just review briefly. Their contempt for authority. In the introductory lecture that I give in all my courses at the university, I deal with the issue of worldview, and I present ten questions uh, that one should answer in order to have sort of the basic framework of one's worldview. And one of the ten questions is, what is the nature of culture? And I point out to my students that at the heart of any culture is the issue of authority. When a culture tells you what you can and cannot do, it is doing so from a position of authority. And I think it's somewhat of a subtle issue, but it really is the heart of the matter. Take something as simple as grammar. When you use correct grammar, you are submitting to the authority of the grammar of a given culture. And if you insist on using incorrect grammar, consciously or unconsciously, you are rejecting the authority of that culture. You're saying, I'm going to talk the way that I want. I don't care what the grammar rules are, I will do what I want. Well, we live in a world of multiculturalism in which there are many authorities. And I tell my students, uh, do you act differently at home than you do at school? And the answer is yes, that their, their parents have a certain culture and the school has a certain culture. Well, in many ways, I think we have, I think we're just tired of all these authorities and so we have now reached the place of autoculturalism. That is, we reject all authority and we are an authority to ourselves. We make up our own culture, we'll do whatever it is that we want to do. By the way, this isn't that strange. I think human beings have been doing this since the Garden of Eden. The world which God created has a hierarchy of authority. Certain people have a certain amount of authority. And no one, apart from God, has absolute authority. We need to know our place in the big picture. The false teachers have completely failed in this area in that they are not afraid to slander beings that are higher than them, what Peter calls celestial beings. I think this is more significant than perhaps we saw last week. Because in Scripture, we are told that we are not to slander human beings that are in higher positions than us. We are to honor the king. We are to be very careful what we say about our rulers. And yet we find here the false teachers slander celestial beings. And their behavior is shown to be outrageous because even these celestial beings, angels, do not do such a thing. In the Old Testament, angels are seen as God's representatives. They are the ones who bring the law to Sinai. In the New Testament, we are told that they are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. The reality is we are not the only 
sentient beings. We're not the only thinking beings in God's creation. God's world is filled with all kinds of beings. And from what we can tell in Scripture, and it doesn't tell us everything, it tells us what we need to know, angels have a hand in the running of this world. So if we get back to what Peter is saying, those who are arrogant and hold authority in contempt begin by slandering God's, those who have been given authority by God, those who stand behind human authorities. Such arrogance. And to Peter, it's even all the more appalling because, as he mentions in verse 11, angels don't do this. If you look at verse 11 in Second Peter 2, Yet even angels, though they are stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. Although the angels are in the right, they do not bring accusations against others in the presence of the Lord. And, and why is that? Because while they know the law and they know what is right and what is wrong, because they are the ones who brought the law to Moses, they do not know whether or not God may choose to bring or may show, choose to show mercy. He alone can show mercy. And so the angels hesitate. They do not slander others. They do not bring accusations because God, in fact, may show mercy. These false teachers, on the other hand, blaspheme in matters they do not understand. And, and should we be surprised? that they go from slander to blasphemy. I, I mentioned last week that murder is an unconscious or sometimes a conscious attack on the Creator. We are made in the image of God. You can't kill God, but you can kill those who bear His image. In the same way, when you slander those who are made in the image of God, you're just a step away from blaspheming God Himself. So we shouldn't be surprised at this. And what will become of these men? They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like beasts, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Judgment and condemnation are coming. In a real sense, they are already experiencing it, in that they are driven by instinct rather than rational thought. The second thing that he mentions is their self-indulgence. Last Sunday I said that if, if false teachers despise or hold authority in contempt, uh, then they will give in to their sinful desires. It's either authority or self-indulgence. I would suggest perhaps there is a third choice, and that is you give the authority to someone else, someone to whom it does not belong. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God and those he has assigned it to, but you choose to disregard that. You hold that authority in contempt, but rather than giving in to self-indulgence, you give it to someone else. This is the power of cults, and that authority has been given to them. In the matter of self-indulgence, Peter gives us the following signs of that self-indulgence. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. When we read this, we should remember what we hear in John 3.19. This is the verdict, light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And yet, one might say of the false teachers, they are not fearless. They don't need darkness to hide their sin. They have no fear. They carouse in broad daylight. Secondly, they are blots and blemishes in contrast to the sacrifices and sacrificers of the Old Testament system. 
They revel in their pleasures while they feast with you. They ruin everything they are a part of. In a new translation by N.T. Wright, he says, if they join you for a meal, they pollute and stain the whole thing as they wallow in their disgusting pleasures. Their eyes are full of adultery. They never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. Just a word here. To seduce the unstable is, in fact, I would say, a double sin. To seduce someone is wrong. But to do it to someone who is unstable, you are taking advantage of the fact that they are weak and unstable. And to me, you have done something doubly wrong. You've taken advantage of their weakness or their need or their lack of stability. And then Peter says they are experts in greed. As I mentioned last week, the root word from this is the word in Greek that we get our word gymnasium from. As much as to say they work out at being greedy. No wonder, he says at the end, an accursed brood. Peter ends by making a connection between the false teachers and Balaam that we find in the book of Numbers. The prophet who was corrected verbally by a donkey, a brute beast, as much as to say animals have more sense than false teachers. Today, Peter continues writing of the false teachers by listing three more characteristics, the features of these teachers. Listen, if you would, as I read verses 17 to 22. These men are springs without water and mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They, pro they promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then tur to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. I've said this several times about Peter's letter, but in these passages I think he is brilliant in his way of constructing them. In verse number 17, he gives us three features of the false teachers, and then he fleshes them out in the verses that follow. So in verse 17, we find that these men are springs without water. These men are mists that are driven by a storm. These men have blackest darkness reserved for them. Let's look at them as Peter fleshes them out. First of all, they are springs without water. That is to say, they have nothing of value to say. If you look at verse number 18, for they mouth empty boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. As one writer put it, wells without water are a most tragic disappointment for a traveler. 
and so are teachers without truth. We should keep in mind the words of Jesus as he spoke to the Samaritan woman. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I will give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then in John 7, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. But Peter sees these false teachers as wells, as springs without water. They are empty. That is, they appear to be one thing, but they are something different. While Peter does not address their teaching as such, he does say, he points to empty, boastful words. They inflate themselves to impress or perhaps to intimidate. I know more than you. I'm from Jerusalem. I am Jewish. I know the Old Testament. You should listen to what I have to say. And to whom would they be speaking? The new converts, the new Christians. People, as Peter puts it, who are just escaping. They are just escaping. Such people would not know as much about God's revelation. They wouldn't know the Old Testament. They would not have a real sense of God's plan in history. They've just come to the truth, and they've been given life. They're newborn babies. One would say that they are unstable. This is not, this is not to offend them or to insult them. When you say that an infant is unstable, it can't stand on its own two feet, you're not insulting the baby, you're simply stating the truth. And these false teachers come in, and these are the people that they target. And how do they pull this off? By appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature. By telling these new converts, you don't need to change the way that you are living. By the way, the phrase lustful desires is something we've seen two other times in this chapter. In chapter 2, verse 2, shameful ways. Then verse 7, filthy lives. The new converts are told by these false teachers, you don't need to escape, just stay as you are. I would suggest to you that if you think about it, and perhaps not even that hard, this is certainly suspicious for at least two reasons. If there is no need to change, then why has one become converted? Why has one put his or her faith in Jesus Christ? If you don't need to change, then what is this all about? And secondly, I would suggest that many people who come to faith in Christ do so because they are seeking to escape the bondage of sin. They are weighed down with the burden of their sins. They want to escape. And then for someone to tell you, oh, those things, it's okay, you can live that way. Boy, a bell should go off in your head to say, something's just not right about this. Because I came to Jesus to have my sins forgiven not to continue to live in them. I would say even in our day that when the church seeks to mimic the ways of the world in practice or in message, the question we should ask is, how is the church any different? What is its uniqueness? And why should anyone listen to the gospel? Just stay as you are.
The second feature that we find is that these men are misdriven by a storm. That is, they are powerless in the face of sin. In verse 19, he, Peter writes, They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. The catchword of the Christian faith is freedom. In John 8, Jesus promised to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In Galatians 5.1, we saw this when we went through Galatians, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And yet, this is a very easily misunderstood word and position. Does freedom mean I have the right, that I have the freedom to do whatever I want? The answer is no. I've spoken about this quite a bit in the last few years, and so I won't belabor the point, um, but I will mention some things we've talked about. First of all, the world in which we live in today, freedom is seen as the highest virtue. It's the highest value. And when the Christian message preaches freedom in Christ, there's a real problem of it being misunderstood. In our society, freedom means freedom from obligation. You're not the boss of me. I can do whatever I want. But is this how the Bible sees freedom? Not at all. Peter wrote in his first epistle, Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Slaves? I thought we were free. I thought that Jesus had made us free. We are free. We are free to live as God intended. As Paul wrote in Romans 6, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. You see, when we are in bondage to sin, we are not free. We are driven by desires. Sin has power over us. And when we are set free, it is this is how a human being is supposed to live. This is how God wants you to live. I mentioned this at Jason and Gwen's wedding. I mentioned it several times since then. But to be free is to realize your inmost nature and to give the fullest expression to it. The simple act of choosing is not freedom. As I mentioned at their wedding, one may choose to play a violin with a hacksaw instead of a bow. But is that freedom? One may choose to pour sand into the gas tank of his or her car, but is that freedom? One may choose to eat something poisonous, but is that freedom? No, the simple act of choosing is not freedom. Choosing well is freedom. When we choose to do what God has commanded us to do, that's why he made us. This is what is best for us. That is true freedom. See, in our world, freedom is choice, period, to choose whatever it is you want to do. What you choose is almost secondary. But this is not realistic. While people resent boundaries, they resent rules, the fact is we live by them. 
We don't breathe poisonous gas. We breathe air. And by God's grace, clean air. That's what we do. That is our freedom. To breathe poisonous gas is not freedom. That is choosing to do something that is quite foolish. As Christians, we have been set free from sin, and we have been set free to obey God. The false teachers have rejected this. They have sought to redefine freedom as the ability to do as one wants. They promise freedom in the future and freedom in the present. And how do they do that? We'll see this, the Lord willing, in chapter 3. They say Jesus isn't coming back. There is no second coming. There is no final judgment. You're not going to be judged for what you do, so you, have, you are free to do whatever you want. One might say, well, that sounds like freedom to me, but it is not. As Peter goes on to say, they themselves are slaves of depravity. They preach freedom, but they, in fact, are enslaved. How ironic is that? Because as Peter puts it, and Paul has told us this as well, a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. The message of these false teachers is worse than useless. They are like the mist that the wind blows and you think it's going to rain. Thursday, I was coming home from school. And I don't know if you remember Thursday, we had a lot of clouds. And I noticed over in the distance, it looked like it was raining somewhere. And I thought, well, I wonder if it's raining at the house. And there was actually just a strip of a rainbow at the top of it. But it faked us out. There was no rain. It's like these false teachers. You look at them and you say, oh, it's going to rain. But in fact, they have nothing to offer. The first metaphor that they are dry springs speaks of their dryness. Here it points to their impotence, their weakness. In both cases, they seem to promise, or their very being seems to promise something that they are not able to deliver. Just to digress a moment, the matter of freedom to the new converts, they offer true freedom. They say, we, have, we know what true freedom is. I think it's in two areas. It is the freedom to do whatever you want. But I think, secondly, it is the freedom to think whatever you want, to believe whatever you want, that you don't have to listen to the apostles. You don't have to listen to Peter. You, know, you don't have to listen to these foundations of the church. You can think whatever you want. And, of course, the false teachers would say this because they are teaching something diametrically opposed to what the apostles preached. This may sound attractive at first glance, but again, I think you find out soon enough, well, this is just the way I used to live. When I was a pagan, when I was an unbeliever, this is how I lived. What is the difference? Just different words, but I'm living the same way. The third feature, and this is something that we've seen throughout this chapter, they have blackest darkness reserved for them. They are destined for judgment. If you look at verses 22, or 20 to 22, if they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the Proverbs are true. 
A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. I mentioned a few minutes ago that I think Peter makes a brilliant case in this passage. But I must tell you that these verses, to me, are perhaps the most difficult in the entire New Testament, along with Hebrews 6, part of which we read in our prayer of confession today. Having said that, our custom is to go verse by verse. We do not have the option to skip it and say, well, these are really, really difficult, so we'll just go on to the next passage. Let's see if we can figure out what Peter is trying to say. I think the main point is clear enough. He's been making this again and again throughout this chapter. Judgment and condemnation are coming, and have no doubt of that. Peter argues earlier in the chapter from the cosmic, the angels, to the global, the worldwide flood, to the local, Sodom and Gomorrah. In each of these cases, judgment came, and it came in unmistakable ways. About the angels, Peter says God sent them to hell, putting them in gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. About the ancient world, he brought the flood on its ungodly people, Sodom and Gomorrah, by burning them to ashes. So it is clear from what Peter writes that judgment will come on these false teachers, although it may not come in what we consider a timely fashion. We would sort of expect God to strike them dead right where they stood. And in fact, as we saw earlier in the chapter, a lot of people are following them and their teaching. Peter is clear, in case we are not, that judgment is what is deserved. The angels sinned. Noah's world was ungodly. Sodom and Gomorrah were not only ungodly, but lawless. He says this twice. As the passage opens for us in verse number 17, we hear the words that are similar to what Peter wrote about the angels. God sent them to hell, putting them in gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. Here, blackest darkness is reserved for them. So I think in verses 20 to 22, Peter is very clear. There will be judgment and condemnation for the false teachers. So, Damon, what is the problem? What is the difficulty? What makes this the most difficult passage in the New Testament? Well, the question is, who is he talking about in verses 20 and 21? Is Peter saying that these false teachers were once Christians and they are no longer Christians? Is he saying that a person can become a child of God and then no longer be a child of God? Can he say in the language of chapter 1 that someone can partake of the divine nature and then lose it? A side note, some people have asked, who, who exactly is Peter writing about here? Because in his letters, there are three groups of people. The stable Christians, those who are in danger, but they are stable. Then you have the new converts, the unstable Christians, and then finally the false teachers. Um, I would say that Peter's not addressing or is talking about stable Christians. Um, they are firmly established in the truth, he says in chapter 1. I would also say that he's not talking about the unstable Christians. Perhaps I can come back to that later. He's writing about the false teachers. One of the problems that we have when we face a passage like this is that oftentimes we are so busy looking at the text, going verse by verse, word by word, that we sort of forget what is the big picture, what is the context of Scripture. What do we find in the totality of Scripture? 
And so I thought we should do that right now, sort of back away from Second Peter 2 and see what, in fact, does the Scripture tell us? First of all, it tells us that salvation that Jesus purchased with his death is full, it is final, and it is free. The cross is God's ultimate solution. It has paid the price for sin once and for all. Its benefits are given to those who believe. And we must take to heart what Jesus said in John 10. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. We'd argue one cannot lose one's salvation. But secondly, the second thing we see in Scripture is there will always be unbelievers in the church. Jesus warned us, warned us of this in Matthew 13, the parable of the wheat and the weeds. That is to say there will be people in the church who have made a public profession of faith, but in fact have not put their faith in Jesus. Thirdly, we see in Scripture that it is extraordinarily difficult for us to judge one another as to what is going on in our hearts. It is difficult to tell a genuine from a fake Christian. Again, consider the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Fourthly, we see, and this particularly in the epistles, but Jesus mentions it in Matthew as well, in cases of blatant disobedience, when there is someone in the congregation who is doing something that is wrong, the congregation is to discipline that person. We put them outside the church. We are not making a judgment as to whether or not they are a Christian. In fact, what we are doing is we are saying, our brother or our sister, we assume that you are a believer. And because you are a believer, your life is not consistent with your profession. So we need to put you out of this congregation as though you are not a believer. And by God's grace, we pray that that person will be restored and come back to the congregation. But discipline is not for the purpose of discerning whether or not someone is a believer. That may become clear over the course of time, but that is not the purpose of it. Lastly, we see in Scripture the true test of whether or not we are merely hearers of the word or are doers is the genuine test whether or not someone is a Christian. We all sin. Let's be clear about that. And there are times when Scripture rebukes us for our sin, and that's what it's supposed to do. But that is quite different from saying, I can do whatever I want to do. I have the freedom to do anything, to commit any sin. With this in mind, look again at verses 20 and 21. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness 
than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. So what is Peter saying? I would suggest the following. Peter has no problem saying that these false teachers once publicly professed and confessed that they put their faith in Jesus Christ. They know about Jesus Christ, but they do not know the way of righteousness. I would argue that for a time they experienced the benefits of following Jesus. Even if one is not a Christian, listen carefully, if one is not a Christian, if one lives according to the ethics of Scripture, they will be better off than if they lived a pagan life. And so you can imagine that someone comes into a congregation and they hear the message, the gospel, the good news, and for a while that's how they live, but then they decide, no, I don't want to do that anymore, and they go back to their old ways. Whatever their public profession was, Peter says, they turned their back on the sacred command. And the sacred command to me is all of Scripture. They've completely disregarded all of Scripture. For a while, they may have followed the path, but they were not true believers and therefore they left the path. They left the truth. They experienced its benefits for a while. But then they left, and they are worse off than they were when they started. As Peter says, it would have been better for them to have never gotten on the path. It would have been better for them never to enter a church. It would have been better for them never to hear the gospel or to make a public profession than to say, I'm a follower of Jesus, and not you know, to say it, but not to do it, and then to return to their old ways. This is a powerful thing that Peter says it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. That's, that's a powerful thing to say. Peter illustrates his point by giving two rather colorful proverbs. In Jewish culture, based on the law, a pig was an unclean animal. It could not be eaten. In the ancient world, a dog was a scavenger. Dogs were not pets, not these loving pets that we have today. They were scavengers. They were wild. And Peter takes these two animals of that time to make his point. Both are brute beasts, and they are creatures of instinct. How else do you explain a dog returning to its vomit? Or a pig that has been cleaned up going back to wallow in the mud? They're not thinking creatures. They are guided by instinct. The false teachers that Peter writes about after an initial display of repentance and perhaps reformation, by their behavior they show that nothing has changed. They've gone back to their old ways. And for Peter, and I would say for us, this is proof that they were never Christians at all. But they are not content to go back to their old ways by themselves. They want company. They want companions. I think part of it is to reassure themselves that we've made the right decision. If I have followers, I must be doing something right. And so as the gospel spreads over the Mediterranean basin, so do false teachers. And Peter, who at this point in his life is probably in Rome awaiting execution, 
he wants to say one final thing to the church. And that is, yes, there's persecution outside the church, but inside the church there's a great danger as well, false teachers. And these men will lead the unstable astray, the new converts. As I said earlier, in their actions, there's a double sin to it. It is one thing to seduce an adult, a mature person. It's another thing to seduce a child, an immature person, a new believer. And the vileness, the wickedness of these men is seen in their actions. I've said this before in the previous Sundays. I think in our time, we tend to focus more on doctrine. What is their doctrinal statement? And that's important. We'll come to that in chapter 3. But behavior is as well. How they live is important. And Peter says of these people, they are not what they seem. They are dry springs. They are mists that promise rain but get blown away. And they will be condemned. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for what it teaches, though certainly certain passages are more difficult than others. We thank you for the gift of salvation, its fullness, its freeness, and the finality of it, that Jesus has given himself that we might have life. We live in a time in which tolerance is seen as a great virtue. And the reality is there are certain things of which we cannot be tolerant. Those who would seduce unstable people, those who would lead new converts astray, those who would lead older Christians astray, these cannot be tolerated. We do pray for discernment and wisdom. And above all, we bow at your feet and thank you for your free grace and your great patience with us, your great mercy, how you have washed away our sins. I thank you for this day that we could come together to worship you. I thank you for a holiday tomorrow, a day to spend with family and friends. May your grace and your spirit go with us as we leave this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.